So one of the consequences of not having a minimum standards um, is that you can't build a high a high performance culture. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast, where we reimagine and redefine sales in a digital world. Welcome to the Redefining Sales Podcast. My name's Abby White. I'm the host of the Redefining Sales Podcast and CEO of Sales Redefined. This week, our guest is the incredible Cameron Buckley, APAC Regional Director of Trust Pilot. This is a truly fascinating conversation that you are going to absolutely love. We talk about all things trust. We talk about why trust is increasing in importance. It's always been important, but why is it increasing even more so? We talk about the flip side of the coin of what do you do when you get a negative review and why there's actually superpowers in having that negative review and how we go about handling that situation. Of course, we talk about creating sales and marketing alignment and a lot of our favorite topics. So before we get stuck into this week's episode, let me tell you a little bit about Cameron from and a sneak peek from his bio. So Cameron, as I mentioned, is APAC Regional Director of Trustpilot. If you haven't come across Trustpilot before, you may have seen them online, but if you haven't, they're a leading online consumer reviews platform. And Cameron's got a really, really interesting background because he's actually got over 20 years experience in marketing, sales, and general management working for different technology companies across Australia, UK, and Asia. So his perspectives around some of our favorite topics is really fascinating, having sat both sides of the fence of sales and marketing. Um, In his role at Trustpilot, Cameron's responsible for the ANZ region. And prior to Trustpilot, Cameron has had some fantastic roles at leading technology companies. So sit back, grab your pad and pen, and let's listen to this week's episode with Cameron Buckley. Welcome to the Redefining Sales podcast. This week, we have got the amazing Cameron Buckley with us. Welcome, Cameron. Hi, Abby, and thanks for the introduction and also for the invitation to join you today. I am super excited to have you. I've got lots and lots of questions that I want to dive into. Um, So let's dive straight in. I want to actually start by understanding a little bit about Trustpilot. Um, I absolutely love the core principles of Trustpilot. I was really, really excited um, to connect with you. But for anyone listening, just to set the foundations who haven't come across Trustpilot, can you give us a little bit about the rundown of, of what you do? Yeah, sure. Trustpilot was founded back in 2007. And at the time, its vision was to create an independent currency of trust, which is is still the the vision today. Um, It's a global uh, digital review platform that brings businesses and consumers together to build trust and inspire greater collaboration. It's essentially free to use. It's open to everyone. And at its core, it's it's built on transparency. Um, So it's essentially a double-sided business in that on one side, it hosts reviews to help consumers shop with greater confidence. And on the other, it delivers rich insights um, to help businesses improve the experience that they offer. And and research is consistently highlighting that consumers will favour brands that are willing to listen and improve. And of course, not not all reviews are always going to be five-star, four-star. Occasionally, you you, you don't get those and you get some, some negative reviews, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. So so tapping into that and displaying those constructive negative reviews demonstrates that sort of level of transparency that businesses are willing to listen and to focus on continuous improvement. So 
Yeah, the model's based on the, the more consumers that use the platform and share their own opinions, the richer the insights we offer businesses and the more opportunities they have to learn um, and to earn that trust for consumers all around the world. So in terms of the, the global side of the business, um, consumers are now leaving review on businesses that have signed with Trustpilot every single second. And consequently, uh, we're in the top 1% of the most visited websites in the world. Wow, that is quite the statement, top 1%. I, go go for it. No, no, that's, that's fine. Look, I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously now and we're talking about sales and, and marketing and the like, and it is about eyeballs. Um, so, you know, that's what people are now in this digital world and trying to get the eyeballs. So, yeah, we work, we work hard for our, at the businesses that, um, that we work for, but equally for consumers as well. So it needs to be a, a balanced sort of impartial view of, of both. Yeah. You have um, given me so many talking points there. So I want to start out with the trust piece first. I mean, you and I both know from long careers in sales, trust in sales has been, you know, since the day dot and it's always been there. But what's really interesting is the latest sort of research on sales is showing that it's increased in importance, um, if that's even possible, but that actually buyers, I think it was something like 3% I read recently, 3% of buyers trust salespeople and there's a lack of trust with brands and so on. So, you know, the the trust has decreased, but the importance has increased. So I think that's really interesting. And you talk there about transparency being part of it as well. So what's your take on how do you build trust? Like, where do you start? Because we all know we've got to do it, but it's easier said than done. So how how do you start that, that journey? Yeah, look, firstly, I agree with you that there has been this significant shift with the growth of consumers researching online and, of course, buying online. And that's across both B2C and B2B models. We've seen that sort of equally across our client base. Um, but I also noticed sort of you know, look, listening to a couple of your podcasts recently that you've spent a bit of time talking about how you know, expediating that digital transformation and the growth of digital sales channels are, are really hot topics, topics at the moment, um, and you've covered those in, in depth. But to your point, again, taking that step back and looking at trust before we get to the channels is, is probably you know, the core of, of the, uh, the issue there because you know, according to reputable sources such as Edelman, who are a large uh, global communication agency that run an annual trust index, it shows that both globally and also locally that trust has now hit a record low. And they've been tracking this index for the best part of 20 years. So, you know, you, you raised it before, it is at a record low and there's lots of statistics to back that up. So their latest report highlights that the scores or the sentiment towards government, businesses, traditional media, social media have, have all dropped to record low. So it's just not one institution, it's multiple. So really at, a, at that macro level, it becomes harder for people, you know, in their different roles, be it as consumers, which is obviously most important to this podcast, but also as citizens, voters, employees, in their different roles um, to know who or what to trust. So the next logical question that you raised is around, you know, where's this trust gap stemming from? Um, and clearly fake news has been a very hot topic um, over the past few years as has media censorship, how social platforms are using consumer data and potentially pushing privacy barriers. So a lot of that has been percolating and circulating in the media. So 
when you add this to you know other issues that have popped up, like the increased number of scams, you know, cybercrime, which is clearly a hot topic this week, um, the mysterious dark web that continues to tra to attract a lot of media exposure, the internet now is seen as not only a place of information, um, but also a place of misinformation that's sort of fueling this this distrust uh, which is out there. So I suppose to wrap it up and, and sort of go back to the pertinent part of your question, which was regarding what can we do about it. In really simple terms, or more I suppose companies, or or more specifically the people in companies, uh, need to be true to their core values. Um, because I've dealt with with hundreds of businesses over the years, as I'm sure you have, and when you start to research their values, there, there's often three or four consistent themes. They mostly claim to be customer-centric, one, authentic and authentic and open brand, two, and they'll invariably in their mission statement, they want to be the most trusted, right? I'm sure you've, you've come across this numerous times with your clients and the like. So when you think about those concepts or those, those high-level terms, they're actually quite ambiguous concepts for salespeople to comprehend and put into their own world and know exactly what to do with them and what they mean. So as sales leaders or, you know, even better as sales and customer support teams who are at that interface uh, with the customer base, you really need to get together, outline what they're, what they're going, what they mean and how they're going to transfer those values into actual behaviours and principles, guiding principles in the way that they interact with their customers. So essentially you want to be seen to the external world in the same way that you want to be seen internally. And I think there's a, there's a big gap there out in the marketplace. So it may sound very simple, but it's often that missing link, if you like, in terms yeah. of that trust equation. Define what they mean, act on this, and, and actually call out any negative or positive examples to bring it to life. So it does start to, to you know, become more than the slogan on the wall. It actually is the way that you act, the way that you respond, the way that you deal with your customers, both internally and externally. So getting that right really is the foundation to be seen, again, in that external world, the same way that you see yourself internally. So some simple, some simple tactics, but, but necessarily and, and often sort of glossed over. Yeah. And can I ask you on that around navigating the bad? Um, you know, I almost don't believe when you see a company that has all good reviews, you're almost like, yeah. mm, is it their mum and their brother and their sister? And like, and you talked before around actually some of the bad can actually be really good insights and people want transparency. And actually, how do we use that? So when you do have something that's a bad review, is it we own it? And again, go back to your point around the values, like how do we navigate the bad? Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to happen. And it's not a, it's not a negative thing. Um, consumers are smart now. They actually realise that the world's not perfect and that there are issues in businesses and a lot of the people work in businesses and they know the, the trials and tribulations that come with it. But what they're looking for is in an imperfect world, they're looking for companies to respond um, so from a review perspective, you know, we encourage all of our, our businesses to respond to both positive, but more importantly, negative reviews and do it in a public fashion to show that, you know, you want to address it um, quickly, that you're empathetic to that person's cause, um, that you want to resolve it. 
And the beauty of a review platform like Trustpilot is that you can turn a negative into a positive. So if, mm. if a customer has a negative experience and you respond adequately and you take it offline and you resolve the issue, be it the product or service that wasn't right or the delivery, and you address that, um, in a lot of instances, consumers will, will actually give you credit for that. And they might give, you know, start with a two a two-star rating, but they have the ability to go in and change that after you've resolved the problem. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it just means that if you be empathetic, if you're quick to respond, you know, and there, there is research out there that consumers would prefer to see a realistic mix of reviews, not that perfect curated glossy view of, of all five stars, because as you say, they become consumers are skeptical for the reasons that I mentioned before. So they do want to see that authenticity of the brand and they want to see the, the care factor as well, that they do care if, if something actually does go off the rails a little bit, which which can happen. Yeah, I love that. And I, I um, read once, don't quote me on this, but I read once, I think it was Book Power of Moments, and they talked about actually when there was a study being done and they looked at some of the most powerful moments that customers were saying, oh, loved it when they did ABC. Um, they were actually referencing negatives that had been turned into a positive. And I think it was something like 25% in this study of really positive experiences and people raving were more when the, you know, what hit the fan and something went wrong and how they responded, how they how they dealt with it and then turned it into a positive. So there's that opportunity there to flip it. Absolutely. And if you want to put a stat to it, um, you know, one of our, our good uh, tech integration partners, Big Commerce, they do an annual e-commerce study um, and in their latest one, it's saying that 70% of consumers would prefer to see a realistic mix of positive and negative reviews, not the, not the almost artificial curated, you know, all five-star reviews. So again, it comes back to that, as you say, that sort of authenticity and, and owning it. Yeah. So final question on that point, because I'm, I'm fascinated about this. So then if someone had a negative review, you wouldn't recommend deleting it. It would be more publicly responding to it and then taking it offline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, again, I mentioned at the start that we have to be equally for consumers as well as businesses and, and be quite impartial. And in an open review platform like Trustpilot is, we don't allow um, businesses to, to actually delete those. Um, yeah. reviews in that in that public domain unless you know it's breaking one of our sort of code of conduct and and they're not yeah. it's not a, it's not a legitimate um, transaction or interaction um, but outside of that it is you know we educate our clients own it deal with it um, and then keep improving you know keep improving yeah. your business so yeah if, if you stick to those sort of principles you, you'll be in good shape yeah, I actually think find it really powerful when you get an email from someone sometimes going, whoopsies, we messed up. And it's and it is that level of response of, you know, are you transparent? As you've said before, are you owning it? Are you putting it right? What are you doing? And it can actually be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've seen some really great examples of where a product may not be right. Um, and, you know, the company will change the, the, the next iteration of their product development based on what the reviews were saying and the feedback that they were getting and they would own it. And, you know, through their marketing and the, through their various other channels, they, they would say, yeah, hey, we messed up, but we fixed it and we listened and thank you. And it's just some of those, you know, those basic sort of um, things that we often forget. 
Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of feedback, and it's just about how do you harness good and bad feedback. Yeah. So on that, actually, so are you seeing businesses use that public feedback um, to then feed into their product development loop, feed into their marketing loop, whatever other loop it might be? So businesses are actually going, oh, okay, let's extract some of the common themes that are occurring here and then look at actually how we use that. So it's almost becoming a superpower for the businesses because it's there, it's the voice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with the volume of reviews that are coming through the Trustpilot platform, not just at an aggregate level, but, but for our clients, be they in sort of technology or, or other businesses, you know, when you're getting that sort of volume that comes through, you need obviously smart tools to help you make sense of it. So artificial intelligence, you know, data science, sentiment yep. analysis, but it's not only at that sort of high level, but you break it down into to key, key topics. So you can actually pull out, is it, is it delivery? Is it service? Is it the, the actual product itself? Um, is it you know, the salesperson? You can actually pull out all those various components and actually run sentiment analysis across those particular topics that you want to drill down to. So that's great fodder for product development or marketing, et cetera. And you know, the truly customer-centric businesses will you know, they'll have Slack channels, if you like, where everyone in the organisation is seeing reviews coming through in that real time. So they're keeping their finger on the pulse as to how they're performing at any given time. And then with the volume, they're actually digging into and starting to extract those insights and then, then act on them as we just touched on. I love that because you're always going to get the random odd one that is sort of this curveball. But I like that sentiment analysis. And then, like you said, looking at the volume so you can really see, OK, what are the core themes and trends here? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. You're always going to get some outliers. but um, And sometimes the outliers come up with some great ideas and sometimes they don't. So, but yeah, you've got to get back into, you know, correlation between what you're doing as a whole and, and where those trends are is probably the, the key to that. Yeah, I love that. So, so, so powerful. So on um, the topic of trends, I'm keen around your take on sales trends. So we've talked a little bit around, you know, some of the transformation we're seeing in sales. You mentioned before around, you know, I've referenced digital in previous podcasts. We've talked about trust being an all-time low and actually the importance of it increasing. Is there anything else that you're seeing at the moment of what's working really well in sales? Yeah, I think... Um... In terms of leadership, before we get into sales, if, if you go back and you think about leadership best practice, it, it's often said that the most successful leaders adopt a situational style of leadership, meaning that they can change or adapt based on the circumstances at the time. Um, so for example, they can flip between being inclusive or directive depending on the variables that are in front of them. And that may be the person they're talking to or the team that they're talking to or the different country that they might be managing at that time, or the economic or competitive environment or climate that they're in. So they can do that to get the best outcome because they've got, you know, if you like, they're multifaceted and they've got different techniques for different circumstances. So the best leaders are those that don't label themselves as having one style. They have these multiple styles that they can draw on. And I think sort of post-pandemic or you know, even more specifically during the pandemic, I feel that that mindset should equally apply to salespeople. Um, mm. In that situational salespeople are now the most effective as they have the ability to switch between styles 
so they can adapt again similarly to the environment or the circumstances as that as the sands sort of shift beneath them um, and clearly you know those sands shifted very rapidly and every than any, more than more so than anyone could have predicted and it's now irreversible that's been well documented that the world's changed forever um, so you need to deal with that so again if you go back to the past sort of before the, the new world, if we go back to the old world, you know, salespeople or even sales leaders uh, would often label themselves or their team me members as a certain type or a persona. So I think, Abby, you, you often refer to the challenger sales model, um, you know, and you might remember the, the different uh, classifications of salespeople or labels that they put on people, you know, and they, they've often stuck, you know, people would say, I'm either a challenger or I'm a hard worker. I'm a lone wolf. They might say they're, they're great. They're a relationship builder or a problem solver, and they would label themselves, or people would label you as one of those sort of five or six types. But that was okay previously. You, you could actually be quite productive, produce good results, and ultimately build successful careers around this rather narrow definition or style that you would adopt. But if you think about it now, it's it's far too limiting. It's far too restrictive in the modern world. And I'll, I'll provide some examples about, you know, lockdowns, which obviously we've all lived through and, and now with remote working, how these, these types are, are really going to box you in and limit your progress in the future. So if you think about relationship builders to start with, they couldn't entertain clients, uh, they couldn't take them to long lunches, sporting events, concerts, all those things that they would do and get the corporate Amex card and go out and build relationships, which stood the test of time. All of that was pulled from beneath them. You think about the hard worker, you know, often they relied on being in the office first or leaving last. And that was a way that they were seen to be working hard, whether they were or they weren't, but they were in the office. And sometimes people got promotions on the back of that because they were there, you know, in that showtime, if you like. Challenges, which I think you're an advocate of. Um, I, I, I am too. But, you know, even that challenger model, when you think, as a, as a society, we were in our most challenging time, right? Mm. When people were sitting at home, potentially with three kids under 10 and, you know, going crazy and dealing with all of that, if they were getting too challenged by people that were selling to them and they were pushing them in a little yep. bit too hard, you know, there's clearly risk attached to that, that approach as well. Problem solvers, if we go through, we've only got a couple to go, but you think about the problem solver. What do they love? They love some of the theatrics of getting the people in a, in a room and whiteboarding and bringing people in, which, which is brilliant. But all of that was pulled from them as well. You know, they were like you and I are sitting sitting in on Zoom calls. And finally, the, the lone wolf, which is a, a bit of an interesting contradiction here. But because on the surface, you'd think that that style would really flourish um, in lockdowns. But as we all experience, you know, people and teams were seeking greater collaboration, more collaboration, not less. So the lone wolf, actually, that style, you'd have to adapt as well. So you think about all of those ways that people used to label themselves one and act and build careers. You can't just be one anymore. And if you label yourself as one, I think you're really limiting your career and, and your progress. So, so I see salespeople as the people that can do the best salespeople those that can develop this level of, let's call it commercial dexterity that allows them to switch, um, you know, evenly between those styles, but definitely not be limited to one or two. 
So in the same way that the best leaders are situational leaders, I, I strongly believe that salespeople of the present and the future need to be uh, situational salespeople. I love that. Commercial dexterity. I've just written that down. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> you need to trademark that one. And it's interesting. I think the other thing that's dangerous for me about that, I love and hate the challenger sale. I love it and hate it at the same time. And the reason I say hate is because I think sometimes people misinterpret it. And it's then I need to be like this. And this is yep. the way that it has to be. And and it can be misinterpreted and actually then be quite negative. Um what I like about what you've talked there is actually that that flexibility to adapt. And, you know, as humans, we're not always the best at responding to change. Um, and so I like what you've talked to there because it, it's interesting. I, I find it fascinating that now things like we get salespeople saying, oh, no, I'm a relationship sales guy, like you're saying. And actually, I don't do social selling, so I'm not going to use LinkedIn or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use Trustpilot or I'm not going to use whatever it is. And actually, in a way, that can sometimes hinder because... I interviewed a guy called Larry Levine and he talks about it as clubs and how many clubs do you have in your sales bag? And that, you know, there's 14 golf clubs and each club has a different purpose and a different use and a different time and place for it. Um, probably butchered that because I don't play golf. But I like what you're talking about here, that we're essentially saying that for high performance sales, you've got to have that ability to flex and adapt and you can't just be that one type and use that one club. It's actually the power, I think, of what you're saying is, adapting and adding more clubs and more styles and what's appropriate to that situation. Is that kind of a good interpretation of it? It is. And I'm not a golfer either, so I might butcher this myself. <laughs> but but, but um, I believe there is one club, it's one of the irons, which, which you can almost go around into a whole round of golf if you had to, right? If you had to yeah. go out and you didn't have your woods and you didn't have your pitching wedge, there is... There is one club and I, it escapes me what it is, but golf, some of my golfing friends tell me that, you know, that's the club of choice. You need to be, let's call it a, a seven iron, right? Yeah. And, and I, the golfers out there will probably critique me and go, this guy's got no idea. But you need to be that seven iron where you can play long and short and you can get out of the, the rough and you can you can be on the green and maybe not the green, but you can be on the fairway. It's that you need to be that where you've got the ability to to do multiple things rather than being, you know, again, to maybe extend this um, analogy too far, you know, just a putter or just a, just, just a one wood or a driver, which has really got one, you know, it's got one one role to play. So, yeah, yeah I, th I think you just need to have that flex, that flexibility to, to go across, yeah, multiple, multiple modes, if you like. You need to be able to switch mode. If you've got one mode, then, yeah, again, you're probably going to limit yourself in terms of how far you can go in your career. Yeah, I really like that. So how do you bring that into teams? Um, how do you build high-performance teams and how do you encourage that, um, that flexibility, that change within the teams that you're building? So probably sort of two parts to that question around how you build high-performance teams, but also how you encourage um, your, the sales teams that obviously work at, at Trustpilot to have that flex, to have those multiple clubs, to you know get good at different clubs. I've got to stop with the golf analogy because I don't play golf. I need a better analogy. All right. Well, how about we we switch from golf to to maybe construction, building something. You know, be okay. it a be it a house or an office, uh, whatever it might be. But it's 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 a, if you think about it, before you build 
a house, an office, or whatever it might be. You need a ceiling, but before, sorry, you need the you need the floor before you build your ceiling, right? And and I think that applies to any team, be it sales, marketing, finance, product, even sporting teams. And in that before you have high performance, you need to have a very clear set of minimum standards and expectations. Um, because as much as it doesn't sound overly inspirational, you need to think of the consequences of not having clearly defined minimum standards in sales. So, are you going to be able to? Are you going to be able to attract and retain high performance in an environment where salespeople are constantly turning up late? They're missing client meetings. They're regularly missing their targets. So, one of the consequences of not having a minimum standards um, is that you can't build a high a high performance culture. So that's the, the critical first step. Um, and once you've got that foundation or you've got that floor in place, you can then start to build the other aspects of high performance um, in a sales culture. So, you know, if, you, if, you, if we look more specifically at high performance sales cultures or cultures in general, it's often set from the top. Mm. So I've always been a believer that, you know, you should encourage your CEO, the exec team to get closer to clients. Uh, to get them involved in some sales or at least have an understanding or an appreciation um, of the process and the challenges. So people follow what they see from their leaders, not always what, they, what they're told to do. So, so get, get the execs, get people right across the organisation, uh, across sales to various degrees. And then it's critical that you encourage existing teams and you recruit people that, of course, have a, a growth mindset. And a lot's been been sort of spoken about there but it's never more important to learn these new skills or develop new skills based on what we touched on before um, in that that modern salesperson will, will need the ability to be situational and have that fluidity across the styles depending on the circumstances so that comes with a growth mindset because if you were one you need to be multiple and you can only be multiple if, if you if you're going to learn in, as a starting point and for a host of reasons, people often associate high performance with that imagery of, of winning in sporting arenas, be that, you know, the Olympics, the Grand Prix, you know, the AFL Grand Final, which was obviously only played last week, or the NRL is being played this week. And they always associate it with, you know, the outcome of someone standing up there, one of the, the sports people holding the cup or the trophy at the end of it. But you need to drill down into the process as well. So it's not that's the outcome, but it's the process of achieving that high performance. And, and to reach these heights, I suppose, it requires a, a methodology of sort of clinically running a diagnostic on, on both your preparation, but also your wins and your losses, because you have lots of either in sales. You have lots of wins, but equally you have lots of losses. It's the, it's the nature of the game. And, and sort of jumping back to sport, if you look at Formula One, um, you look at Formula One, the most successful teams in Formula One, and, and all of them do, that, do this to varying degrees, they actually run a really detailed sort of diagnostics, not just on the, on the driver's performance, but on the team's performance. And they're always looking at incremental improvements. So after a race and, you know, people are up there, they're on the dais and they're getting sprayed with champagne and all the rest of it, they will then go straight into this review and they'll spend more time on the review than they actually spent out there in the race itself. And you think about that. And transferring that to sales, really the same should apply, that 
yes, we can celebrate the wins and, and that's brilliant, but also you need to do deeper reviews on why you didn't win a deal or why you won a deal, um, why you didn't get that renewal. So it's a mindset about thinking, thinking about continuously improving. And, and on that topic, I suppose, just to, to round this off, at a high level, you need to look for individuals and build teams that have a, a shared commitment to really three things um, and are constantly um, investing in them. One is skills, the other is knowledge, and the last one's attitude. Um, but it's last but not least, it's, you should never under input, underestimate you know, attitude because invariably that will dictate the ability to build and refine your skills and knowledge. So, you know, they're the three attributes, the, the three parts. And how do you build high performance in, in salespeople and sales teams? Look for those three attributes and, and invest in them heavily. Yeah. Oh, so many, so many, so many good points there. I was writing down loads of notes. So I was like, oh, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I feel like I need another five hours with you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to choose to touch on the review point, actually, because I think that's really interesting that you talked about, you know, using Formula One they spend more time reviewing than they actually did out there and actually how do you review what you won and what you lost. Does that also, so if you've embedded that within Trustpilot, within your team, so, okay, where did we win? What did we do? And what can we learn from that? Where did we lose? What can we learn? Does that also encourage that continuous, open, honest feedback and sort of almost like a learning loop? Have you found, I guess, what's been your experience of implementing those, that review cycle? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, I suppose it's no coincidence, but what we do is often reviews. So I essentially know, I like, <laughs> yeah, and, and it goes back to, you have to practice what you preach. Um, and we are consistently preaching about continuously improving our clients' businesses through the feedback, et cetera. So we have to, we have to do the same. Um, you know, we've got our own review, plat you know, we obviously use our platform. We've got tens of thousands of reviews that come in. And, you know, we're constantly looking at that and running, you know, running um, diagnostics on what we're doing well and what we're not as well, both from a consumer perspective and a, and a business perspective. And then you've got to, if you like, lift the hood using that sporting analogy when, yeah. a, deal, when a deal doesn't happen and, and you can get quite granular. You know, you have to start to think about the language that you used in that presentation or you didn't use or the way that you responded, how quickly did you respond you know, at what time did you respond? Um, how did you respond? Did you build, you know, relationships across the various stakeholders or were you sort of constrained to one particular area? Um, did you provide that person who might be your advocate with all the right tools and all the right presentation material for them to go and do their pitch internally? So you have to really go back and, and you know, dig deeper. Did you... Did you actually connect with them on LinkedIn? Did you send them the white papers? And I know you speak about sort of multiple touch points along the way before people make a decision. Did you do everything that you could along along that journey? And I think, yeah, if you, if you do that, it's going to stand you in good stead. Um, but you do have to go quite granular. Um, and sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes you feel like you just need to move on to the, the next one. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's for the reasons we just spoke about with Formula One, that's that's high performance is actually yeah. digging deep, digging deeper when when a lot of people will just sort of gloss over it and say, didn't get it next. Um, yeah. So so sometimes you need to be in an uncomfortable position to get better. Yeah, I 
love that that is so true and it's interesting going granular do you tend to have like a cheat sheet or like a checklist of this is what we're going to talk about in our win review this is what we're going to talk about in our loss review or is it more just trying to pick apart the follow the process follow the bouncing ball and pick apart what went wrong or what went right or is it just we have a set checklist that people should be building so if i look at my ibm days ibm had a template that we stuck to but actually in a way sometimes that's great because you've got a template but sometimes it's bad because you might miss other things if you'd opened it all out to bear yeah. on the table yeah i i probably subscribe more to the latter that yeah. um make it more conversational have it having your mind a bit of a structure and and sort of yeah. you know pull it into the directions that you need to but you, you don't want to create an environment where people are feeling like they're going into a school, back to school, where, yeah. you know, you want to, we're all adults, we're working, you want to make it more conversational, not adversarial, um, and you want to make it about learning. So if you do pull out the, the check sheet, if you like, it does feel a little bit draconian, a little bit smothering, yeah. you, you, and you may not get, you may not, as a result, you may not get all of the insights that you need because you're a little bit constrained and restricted to, to, to that sheet. So I think make it conversational, but with a, a little bit of a roadmap that you've got in mind. Yeah. And I think as a salesperson, you also get trained on these are the questions I'm going to get asked. So you're not necessarily thinking about it properly. You're not necessarily thinking going, right, what worked here? And actually asking the really open, big questions to try and get a good outcome. You try more to tick the box of the questions that are in front of you. So I, I definitely agree with that. So I want to move us forward to my favorite topic on the planet, which is bringing together sales and marketing. It's um, clearly the number one thing I talk about in life. Um, how do you obviously have got huge wealth of leadership experience. How do you start to look at bridging that gap and pulling together sales and marketing to get a better ROI? Yeah, I think, um, and you might have experienced this yourself over the years, I think to gain credibility in, in leading teams, you need to have, have walked in their shoes to a degree. Um, so to put another way, you just need to have an understanding of their roles and, and, and be a little bit empathetic to the challenges that they might have, be that in sales or marketing. So before getting into general management type roles, I, I had a re reasonably solid grounding in both sales and marketing. I sort of flipped between the two started with an economics and marketing degree, but then got into sales roles. And it was B2B sales. It was selling to you know, marketing and media solutions to marketers um, and media executives. So, yeah, again, before sort of jumping into sort of general management, um, it was sort of flipping between sort of CMO and sales director roles. So as I progressed, I always tried to have that, if you like, that um, – a relatively balanced view across both disciplines and hopefully be seen like Trustpilot tries to be as impartial, right? Supporting both, not favouring one over the other in the same way that we do it with, with our consumers um, and, you know, the reviewers and also the businesses. So if you can try and do that, but going back to that first point, it's, it's actually walking in their shoes. Um, so it, it's often easier said than done. But at a, in a practical sense, and, and I suppose there are some tactics that um, I try and deploy to get teams closer um, and get the two sort of working harmoniously and in sync, which is nirvana. Yeah. And some of those some of those simple initiatives are like, 
you know, basic things like having marketing attend all to all the sales team stand-ups and forecasting meetings. So they're keeping their finger on the pulse in terms of the sales organization, the numbers. They're they're in a rhythm about what's happening. So it may be day, it might be daily, it might be weekly, monthly, but to get into a cadence where where there is that crossover. Um, and at Trustpilot, we're you know, we're selling to marketers. And so, you know, our, our head of marketing, you know, very much in those forecasting meetings and the like, and, and adds a lot of value too, because, because she's a marketer and we're selling to marketers, they actually bring in a, a really interesting perspective of, on the opportunities. And they talk about, you know, the way that they're being sold to from multiple other vendors and the like, and it, it brings it to life and it, it makes it real. So yeah, our head of marketing, um, you know, she's very much close to clients. They'll attend conferences. She'll speak on panels, um, talk to customers and prospects at events, and even occasionally sort of get into review meetings with, with clients. So play an active role across both. And, and therefore, you're getting respect and you're getting that empathy that you're not sitting back too far and you're not sitting there and, and looking at textbooks and talking about brand and some of those esoteric things that salespeople may not relate to. But you're kind of in in the trenches with them, and it's not yeah. always, but it's it's managing that to a certain degree. Um, and I suppose to complement that, the other part is you know actually having shared goals, and this is pretty obvious. But there's you know there's nothing that brings teams and people closer together when they've got a shared KPI, um, mm. which might ha- might have an influence on the, on their bonus and you know things that things that matter to them. So. You know, when you're coming up with overall campaign objectives, don't make them sort of fragmented and segmented. Actually try and bring them together as best you can. Um, and also make the objectives visible as well. Um, and I suppose, you know, we spend a lot of time now on chat channels and the like, but don't have them fragmented where you've got marketing, you've got sales, and the two never really intertwine. Make sure that you've got you know, everyone needs their own channel, but you should have a shared one as well where you can really start to collaborate and, and bounce ideas and, and, again, get that empathy that I keep referring to. So, yeah, at a high level, I, I think there's some of the tactics and essentially it needs to be um, reciprocal in that sales and marketing need to have that crossover, just not one way or the other. So when marketing are running, um, you know, their planning days, et cetera, and they're talking, thinking about campaigns and strategies and tactics, you know, what they should do is actually invite salespeople in to that. And it may not be for the whole day of that sort of strategic offsite, but they should pop in at certain parts and actually share their views about what they're experiencing on the ground and, and the like, because the marketers stand to benefit and equally the salespeople feel like they're, they're part of the team. So, yeah, there's some tim- simple tactics, but ultimately it's about having that healthy mutual respect for each discipline. And the only way that you're going to do that is, is actually, if you're like blending them, the cross-pollinization and actually just talking as, as, as humans and, and getting to understand each other's roles. I love that. I love so many things about that because it's funny, you say, you referenced earlier, you know, oh, some of it seems obvious or it seems simple, um, paraphrasing, but actually, you know, the shared KPIs that you referenced, the being in the trenches together, the attending the forecast calls, the communication on the chat, they seem really obvious and simple, but yet the research shows us that you know, nine out of 10 sales and marketing professionals do not believe they're aligned on KPI, strategy, goals. Um, one third don't even talk or communicate. So it's that 
common sense isn't common practice, which is one of my favorite expressions. And that actually those simple things that seem obvious, most of us actually are not doing. And so they're actually, what I love about what you've just shared and why I've got so excited because it's so highly practical that I feel people can listen to that and embed that in their organization. Yeah, look, it's you know, my experience, again, sort of working across sales and marketing and, and overseeing both um, at various stages, it, it works. And it's it's the human piece to it. Um, and again, you know, once there's that that greater understanding, there's there's greater appreciation. So you've got to get the understanding first to get the appreciation. And once you've got both of them, then you're, you're in a much better place. Do you think on that note, then the future for career paths for very senior leadership roles like we're starting to see now more and more, we hear about the chief revenue officer and we hear sort of some of those sorts of roles that are actually sitting across sales and marketing. Do you think some of the future will be actually saying, okay, well, I need to have sat in sales. I need to have sat in marketing to then become a chief revenue officer. So I have that empathy, that appreciation, that experience of both because traditionally I start in sales, I grow my career path in sales, and then maybe I go up into the leadership ranks from there. Or I start in marketing, I go up to CMO, and maybe I go up from there. Do you think that now there's going to be more of that cross-pollination? Because what you've talked to of sitting in both, in my experience, is probably the minority of people that have crossed into both worlds. Yeah, I think it used to happen probably even more than it does now. And it probably needs to more now than it ever, ever has been. But you think about you know rewinding when people got cadetships and they'd go into businesses and they'd be you know they would actually put them into various parts of the organisation not just sales and marketing but they put them in operational roles and they put them in finance roles and they'll give them this fantastic grounding around you know holistically looking at a business as they went through the ranks. Now they'd have to be the best managers in the, of the future because they spent time in those various functions, um, yeah. not just not just one. Um, so that's an extreme example. But I've seen people, executives, that have gone through those programs and started somewhere, you know, straight out of university. They were bright. They were up and comers. They put them on the fast track. The fast track was across multiple you know, facets and departments, and and then they became amazing leaders. It's it's not just that you know their aptitude. It's it's the the process that they went through that actually helped them along the way, and you know that's a a full organization, all the various channels. But why wouldn't we do it in sales and marketing? You know mm. why wouldn't why wouldn't you have them if it's just two that are alternating between the two? And you know I've met lots of salespeople who are great marketers, and I've met lots of you know, marketers that are great salespeople. Um, and, you know, you, you think of the best marketers and, you know, I've worked as, a, again, as a sort of CMO and worked in marketing myself, the people that I've always respected the most and actually got the most done were the best at selling, right? Mm. They, were, they were, yes, they were good at strategy and, you know, developing plans and executing, but they could get in a room and they could express their ideas clearly, succinctly, you know, persuasively. They're the ones that actually got all of the, the credit. Um, and equally, I've seen some, you know, if you, if you go back to social selling, you know, at the moment, if you're a salesperson, essentially what you're doing is marketing yourself in the social world, be it on LinkedIn and the like and the way that they build their profiles. So, you know, it, it's very interchangeable. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's just how do, you, how do you actually harness it, bring it together in some sort of structured fashion 
that the two can work, you know, more harmoniously together and then create leaders of the future that, that have, again, they've got that commercial dexterity in that they can, they can go either way. Yeah. I really, really like that. Commercial dexterity is going to be my word of the day. I'm going to try and use that in conversation today. It's going to be my challenge. <laughs> so I know I am running short on time with picking your brain. So I've got sort of two quick fire questions for you. The first is obviously you've had a wildly successful career. We, you know, we just talked about from being CMO to now sort of being on the sales side of the fence and into director roles. Do you have any non-negotiable habits that have helped you on your journey and you know either personal or professional to really be at your best yeah look growing up I, I loved playing all sports other than golf which we just established before um <laughs> and as that got a little bit more serious as I got a bit older you know I, I suppose I responded quite well to coaches philosophies around high performance and you know, that probably started to unquestionably it, it actually shape my thinking around habits, you know, as you go into uni and then your career. And I probably just for me, I probably distill it down into there's there's a number of them, but probably the top four for me is never underestimate an appetite for hard work. Um, win the morning, win the day, um, which is referred to a bit now. Um, always add to your knowledge base with that growth mindset and, and take the most difficult roles. So, you know, at a high level there, they seem pretty simple, but in terms of that appetite, um, never underestimate the appetite for hard work. That doesn't mean sort of mindlessly working hard. It's more about doing what matters more often than what your competitors and colleagues do. So, you know, I still say simple mantras like to myself, like do the work to make it work or do the one percenters, or as an early boss of mine would say, um, JDI, which is an abbreviation for this Nike slogan that you might remember, just do it. Yeah. You know, so if, you, if, you, if you've got a problem and you're procrastinating or you're pontificating about something, sometimes you just need to get in and get the work done. Um, so it sounds simple, but that preparation is really important. And as far as that preparation, you know, I'm a big believer in, in that win the morning, win the day. So always been an early riser. Um, for me, I know it's my, what, what I call my prime time in that that's when my mind and body is probably performing at, at optimal levels. So I try not to waste that time. Um, you know, I'll get up early, sort of 5, 5.30 and make it a habit to, you know, develop your list, think about your day, um, think about what you need to get done, get some of it done early, do some exercise. So you actually feel like you've, you've achieved something already. And do yeah. it in that in, in the early part of the day. So you're actually ahead of the day rather than you feel like you're chasing it, um, sort of following it. And yeah, you know, the other part is around that, around that, um, you know, we touched on it before about the growth mindset. And you know, my parents were both worked in the education sector, so always had that grounding and around the virtues of knowledge and you know, previously and still to this day, seek it out by you know reading a, a broad range of books and the like. Um, but obviously now increasingly I'm listening to podcasts like yours and, and others, but not only do that side of it, but also talk to people, um, tap into their knowledge, it's people that have got different experiences or more experience in, as, than yourself. But when you're talking to them, make sure that you're not wasting their time because their time is valuable. 
Um, so make sure you, you go in there with a, with a, you're very clear and upfront about what you're hoping to get out of it. And it may sound a little bit rude and abrupt, but that's what that's what people like at certain levels. They, you know, there's all the niceties and all of the pleasantries, but if you could say, I want to achieve X, Y, Z out of this conversation, invariably you'll get it from senior people and they'll respect you more for it. And, and finally, just for some of the reasons, um, you know, I've briefly touched on that, yeah, I've always gravitated to the difficult jobs. Um, I get a bit restless if I'm sort of in that comfort zone. And I feel like the harder ones, they may not be as enjoyable, but then the most rewarding in that you get the most respect from the senior people you're working with or even the senior people that you want to work with in the future when you've, you've actually done something that's difficult. Um, so reflecting on my own career, the, the, the most challenging times were, were definitely in this perverse way, they were the most enjoyable times, like living abroad for a number of years and some of the challenges that come with that. So, yeah, I think that that helps you develop certain skills in certain areas that you wouldn't have been exposed to either, either if you took that, you know, the more comfortable conventional path. So, yeah, they're, they're probably the, the sort of four top four things for me. I like that. My, one of my favourite expressions is growth and comfort do not coexist, which was Ginny Rometty, ex-IBM, ironically. And um, I like that because when you're in a difficult role, you're having to learn, you're having to grow, you're having to stretch. And it's not always fun. But like you said, it's so rewarding than the other side because, you know, as humans, we're designed to grow. That's what we're designed for. Yep. And if you don't, you're going backwards. You're not stagnating. You're actually going backwards. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. So you mentioned their books, which obviously, um, as anyone who knows me, would make my ears prick up and I'm terrible. And my credit card bill probably reflects every time I do a podcast because I get off the podcast and I just go order whatever books are mentioned. So I'm going to ask the most dangerous question to man, which is what are your book recommendations? Because you've said there that you're a reader. And you may have read this one. Um Linking back to high performance, I'd have to go with Atomic Habits uh, by James Clear. Yeah. So it's you're nodding, but it's a book about the power of marginal gains or, or a system, system, systematizing a way of helping you get better by 1% every day. Um, so I don't think it necessarily changed the way I, I, I sort of work or live because you know, I like the theory and principle, but what it's done is it provides you know, really valuable proof points for at a framework for your team and for others to sort of pass on. Um, and there's some great case studies in there, um, again, sporting related, but um, they talk about the, the British cycling team and they brought in a coach before the, I think it was the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And they brought this coach in about you know, three or four years prior and very methodically went about improving them 1% every day. That was, that was the goal. And you think about that over, over months, years, et cetera. Um, and essentially the, the results were amazing. Um, you know, they went from a team that could never win a medal or very rarely, if, if ever it was bronze, to absolutely smashing it in Beijing. And then for the next decade, they were the most, um, most successful team in the world. Um, yeah. And you look at the, the what I loved about it when going back to that case study is it wasn't a singular big idea that got them there. It was the culmination of all the, the detail. So small things like the weight of the paint on the bike. Um, it was the Lycra that they were wearing. It was the air pressure in the tyres, the pillow that they were sleeping on when they were travelling, and then all of the other 
you know, scientific part of, of training. But it was just a, a really good example. And there's numerous other examples in that book around the power of marginal gains if you if you have a commitment to it. And therefore, it's, it's definitely my most gifted book. And the other one, going back to Early Riser, is, is the 5am Club by uh, Robin Sharma. So for reasons that we spoke about before, it's it's it, it just makes you make make the most of that time, maximise the time at that part of the day. It gives you a, gives you a nice understanding of, of why it's important so you don't feel like you're wasting your time when the alarm goes off at five. Yeah, it's funny. I got asked recently to pin down to one book and I was like, ooh, that's so unfair. And I said Atomic Habits. And I actually was laughing when you were talking because um, for anyone watching on video, I've got next to me, this is James Clear's Instagram. It didn't print very well, but I was printing off some of his quotes and it didn't do very well, but I was printing off James Clear quotes off his Instagram because I like having things like that by my desk as sort of inspiration, depending on what my headspace is at. And I find James Clear, it actually is a theme of what we talked about a lot. Some of it's so simple, but so impactful and so powerful. He is incredible. Clear by name, clear by nature. Please. Oh, I like that. Oh, I can tell you're a marketer now. You got it. So, Karen, you have been absolutely incredible. Um, I've loved this. If our audience want to go and connect with you, obviously we'll put the link to Trustpilot in the show notes. But if they want to connect with you, where do you hang out other than um, getting up at 5 a.m.? Are we best to connect with you on LinkedIn? LinkedIn is the best for me, definitely. And as you say, for Trustpilot, it's it's just the website and the various social channels. But, yeah, LinkedIn's the best for me. I do hang out there quite a bit. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I've got loads of notes that I've really enjoyed and inspiration points and commercial dexterity is going to be my word of the day. Look forward to hearing it in the future. <laughs> Thanks, Cameron. Pleasure. Thanks, Abby. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to receive the inside scoop on what is working right now in our highest performing campaigns, and likewise, what are the pitfalls to avoid directly to your inbox, then simply visit insidescoop.salesredefined.com.au to make sure that you receive our fortnightly newsletter with everything that you need to know to stay ahead of the pack directly to your inbox. And finally, before you leave us, don't forget to subscribe to Redefining Sales podcast so that you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, we would really, really appreciate it if you could leave us a comment or perhaps share it with a friend or colleague who you know would enjoy it. We'll see you next time. If you do, I